Now, if you have children between the ages of four and six, you may send them with Mrs. Brister for children's worship training. It's an opportunity for them to learn and to understand how we worship our God and King. I would invite the rest of us to turn now to the book of Acts. Our text this morning will be the second portion of Acts chapter 9, the middle section, as we continue in the story of Saul, soon to be Paul. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, we will begin at the second half of verse 19 and read through verse 31. This is the very word of God. It is completely authoritative. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely without error. Acts chapter 9. For some days he, that is Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately... He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews that lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray that the Lord would add his blessing to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would show us the Lord Jesus from your word. We ask, O Lord, that where your word is unfamiliar to us, you would make it sure and clear. We ask, O Lord, that where we are very familiar with portions of your word, that you would make it fresh and new to us. We ask, Lord, most of all, that you would use your word 
to cause us to repent of our sins, to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to serve and to love you more and more. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have been studying perhaps the greatest conversion story in the history of the world. The conversion of one man, this Saul of Tarsus, changed the entire world. The world that we live in today would not be possible if Saul of Tarsus did not exist. And more importantly, if the Lord God himself had not drawn him to himself. Don't ever let it be said that God does not act in history. For he appeared on a road to Damascus and the world was never the same. We think about Saul and we think about how he became Paul and it is easy oftentimes to think in theological categories. To think about how Paul was justified on the road to Emmaus. And then to think about how he went through a process of sanctification and how he longed to be glorified. And it doesn't really make a difficult task to do this because Paul is so full of theology. He teaches us these categories. He teaches us what it means to be united with Jesus Christ. And that is a good thing to do, to delve into the depths of the Bible and to find out what the Lord will teach us. But Saul teaches us in another way as well. He teaches us that the Christian life is not just lived out in theological categories. That theology actually makes a difference in the Christian's life. It's something that appears, that shows. Perhaps you've had this experience. Maybe you've said to your brother or your sister, well, it's all well and good that you say these things, but prove it to me. Show me. This tendency that we have to want to see the reality of something occurs so much that we have a state whose nickname is the show me state. We want to see it. Don't just talk the talk. Show me how it's affected your life. In theology, we talk about this as the process of sanctification that shows more and more that God is at work in our lives. And so we've seen the great act of justification, of conversion in Paul. And now this morning, we're going to begin to see God working, sanctifying Paul, making him into the man that God wants him to be. And when God changes us, he doesn't leave any piece untouched. He leaves no stone unturned. He changes our entire being. And so this morning, I'd like us to see Paul as a prototype of that for us. As God changes him into three main components of humanity. First, we will see that Saul is one who has a changed mind. His mind is changed. He begins to think differently. He begins to have a different perspective. Christianity is the religion of the book. It is a religion of truth. It is a relationship that is based on reality. And therefore, we begin with the mind. But we don't stop there. Because God doesn't. He not only changes Saul's mind, he then changes Saul's will. 
Not only a changed mind, but also a changed will. And then finally we see something that I think often goes overlooked in our circles. That is that this mind and this will that have been changed leads to a changed heart. It leads to changed relationships, a changed viewpoint of others. So let's look then and see Saul as he changes in mind, in will, and in heart. Let's begin then with the mind. Saul was perhaps one of the most brilliant minds of his day. Knowledgeable in Greek, in Hebrew, in Aramaic, in Latin. Schooled in the ways of the Pharisees. Understanding the details of Roman law. Knowing what it was like to be a citizen and how that affected his relationships with others. He was a man who was nothing short of brilliant. But we also know from our previous study in Acts that it's not sufficient to be brilliant. Some of the most brilliant minds that have ever graced the earth are foolish. I think of a story that just came out a week or two ago of a man who has been bound to a wheelchair for decades, who has probed the depths of theoretical physics, who, is, who holds the professorial chair of Sir Isaac Newton in England. Speaking of Professor Hawking, a man who knows all of the details of the laws of physics and of gravity and of science. And this man, with all of the brain power that he can muster, thinks that we will take him seriously when he says, because gravity exists, there's no need for God. As if he doesn't anticipate the question, then where did gravity come from? You see, he is brilliant, but that's not enough. So with Saul. But God gets a hold of Saul and he begins to mold him, changing his mind, making him even a greater pursuer of the truth. That's what happens when one comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever let anyone tell you that belief in Christ is putting your hand over your eyes and leaping in the dark. A belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is belief in historical fact. It is belief in the truth of the universe and how it exists. It is a desire to probe into all of the great questions. Before our century, virtually every brilliant scientific mind was a thoroughgoing Christian. Think of Newton himself. Christianity is a, a belief it is a relationship that is founded upon truth. And Saul was one who knew God's truth. It's very interesting. Saul is converted and for some days he stays with the disciples at Damascus, Luke tells us. But he doesn't waste any time. This is no Club Med. This is no time when he needs to feverishly look up things to figure out where he stands and to get his feet on the ground. No, immediately, using that wonderful word that is, is so well known to Mark, immediately, Luke says, he goes out and he proclaims Jesus in the synagogues. You see, what God has done is he has put into perspective everything that Saul already knows because Saul goes out and begins to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. Where would he learn of this concept of the Son of God? 
Where would he learn of the idea of the anointed one, of the Messiah? Well, he would, of course, have learned it at the feet of Gamaliel, with the Pharisees, in his study of the Old Testament, how when he was a boy, perhaps before he was bar mitzvahed, he recited Bible verses, as many of you children do. He perhaps sang the equivalent of first century VBS songs, memorizing the Bible, memorizing the great truths of the Scriptures. This is an important task. Even the youngest among us, God may use you yet as a Saul. Fill your mind with God's truth. You don't know what God is going to do with you. Be prepared. His truth is to be devoured, consumed, memorized, and studied. Saul would have known the promises of 2 Samuel 7 when God told David that he would raise up a son who would sit on an eternal throne and who would reign forever and ever. And you could almost imagine in the minutes, the hours, the days after meeting the Lord Jesus Christ, he would be sitting with himself and say, that's Jesus. When God spoke to David, can you believe it? That's Jesus. And I can almost imagine in my sanctified imagination him running around the town saying, do you know, do you see? Look, turn here in the Bible. That's Jesus. Look at that promise. He's the Son of God. A fervor, a desire, firing his mind. He would also know the great truth of Psalm 2, where the Lord says to his Son, this day I have begotten you. And I have given to you the ends of the earth. And Paul would look at that scripture and say, Jesus is the Son of God and He is victorious. No one can stop Him. He took what God had given to Him. I have a smaller level of experience like this. Before I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, I had decided in my life, for my own initiative, not thinking God was involved at all, that I was going to be a classicist. Study great old dusty tomes of Latin and of Greek. And I studied and studied and studied and learned and read and read and read. In graduate school, I read the equivalent of about four Pauline epistles a day in class in the original language. 20 to 30 pages of Greek. Why? Because I loved it and because it was what I wanted to do and it was because that's what my life was going to be. Little did I know that the Lord was using all of that sweat and all of that hard work, using it in my mind to lift myself up, so that when He made Himself known to me, when He revealed the Lord Jesus Christ to me, I would enter seminary with more Greek preparation than most professors. Completely of God. But you see, God can do that for you too. Perhaps you like to memorize things. Perhaps you like to organize things. Perhaps... You like to be hospitable. God will take the gifts that He has given to you and use them for the kingdom. God doesn't waste time. And He doesn't waste our mind. Paul's mind, Saul's mind was opened. And all that he knew poured out. And he began to proclaim God's truth. Now, I want you to imagine the scene here. Let me see if I can set it for you. Saul of Tarsus. Brilliant Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, walks into the synagogue. And on this half of the synagogue, 
are all of his former compatriots. The guys who put the cloaks at his feet. The guys who had the midnight planning sessions about how they would stone the dirty Christians. The guys who planned to earn their ranks with the Sanhedrin by going out with Saul and persecuting Christians. And they see him come in and they look at him very oddly. And on the other half of the room are the believing Jews who haven't left the synagogue yet, who are treated as second-class citizens, who are suspicious of the others in the synagogue. And they look at Saul of Tarsus come in, and what they see is a man who killed their aunts, their uncles, their brothers, their parents. And they look at him. Talk about a rough reception. It's much more than walking into church without a tie with your shirt untucked. And Saul begins to preach Jesus. And everyone looks at him and wonders who this crazy fellow is. Who does he think he is walking in here? Doesn't he know this is liable to explode in our midst? But Saul knows. Because he cannot help but proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants it to explode into the hearts of everyone who can hear to have the same change that he has, to have the same view of life that he has, to have the same love for the Savior that he has. It's a passion. And he does this immediately. He doesn't sit down and think, I ought to lay low for a week or two or a month. No, he comes out and he proclaims Jesus Christ without any delay. Are you hesitant to proclaim Jesus Christ? Maybe because there's someone in the office that you know just won't take it right. Or someone in the mom's group. Or maybe because the kids will make fun of you. Saul of Tarsus eggs us on. He walks into the most hostile situation you can imagine and he cannot help but proclaim Jesus. And God uses this. He uses this foolishness of preaching He uses it to great effect. Those who hear him are amazed. They don't understand how this change could happen. And Saul increases in power. And he increases in authority. And he confounds the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He lays out the most logical of arguments. That's what it means to prove. It's putting down pieces of paper or putting down objects next to one another to make your case. And the people are affected greatly because God uses the foolishness of preaching. And I want you to also notice what Saul preaches. He doesn't preach, I'm changed. He doesn't preach, look what happened to me at Damascus. He doesn't preach, look what I can do. He preaches Jesus. There's no focus on himself. If anyone had a story to tell, it's Saul. But he who doesn't want them to see Saul, he wants them to see Jesus. And so God uses the foolishness of preaching to great effect. What a contrast Christianity is to every other so-called religion. Islam has advanced across the globe in the last 1,500 years. I think something like 30 to 40% of all the people in the world are Muslims. Most of them at the point of a gun or a knife. Islam is a conquering religion. It is a subjecting religion. 
You don't think for yourself. If you're a woman, we do our best to pretend that you don't exist. We wrap you in a towel or a sheet or a blanket. If you're a child, we don't want to hear from you. If you're a man, we don't want to hear from you. All is submission and violence. And yet Christianity has exploded even more through love, through submission to Jesus Christ, through honoring others, through peace. God uses us and He uses our minds. Saul was primed through his education. But the conversion was no easy task. It was truly a miracle of God because not only was his mind changed, but God changed his will. And if anyone had a stubborn will, it was Saul. You see, if you disagreed with Saul and you said, well, you know, can't we just agree to disagree? He'd be liable to punch you in the nose. If you were fervent about something that he opposed, he'd be liable to try and kill you or arrest you. And it didn't matter if you were a man, a woman, or a child. You see, Saul was very stubborn when he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. But now he begins to follow after God's will. And we see it here in this story and in the gap of this story. After Saul confounds the Jews that lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, we see then verse 23. In many of our Bibles, that is a new paragraph, and perhaps there's even a little header above it. What you might want to do, if you have a pencil, is right in the margin, right there above, verse 23, you might want to write the phrase, Galatians 1. Because you see, when Luke says, when many days had passed, he's really giving us shorthand. Because in between, when Paul was initially in Damascus, And now, after many days, Paul spent some time in a place called Arabia. We know this because of Galatians 1, verse 17. He says, when I had been converted, I did not go up to Jerusalem. I did not go to the apostles who were before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So we have three years of a period of time between verse 22 and verse 23. Now remember that the Jews count inclusively. Any part of an item is included. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ can be crucified on Friday, be in the tomb on Saturday, and rise on Sunday, and that's three in Jewish counting, because it's three parts. So this is somewhere between a little more than two and a little less than three years that he is off in Arabia. Why does Paul tell us this? Well, Paul tells us this in Galatians because he wants us to know that he was not dependent on someone else for his gospel, that he had received it from God himself. But I think there's something else we need to see here between verse 22 and verse 23. Saul was converted, and he was what we call, figuratively, on fire for the Lord. He's out there preaching. He's in the synagogues. He's confounding the Jews. He's making progress. And God says to him, go to Arabia. Now, what might we say? But Lord, look at this viable, valuable ministry I have. I have disciples. I'm teaching. 
I'm making good effect for the kingdom. Are you really sure, Lord? Maybe you should think about that a little bit. Now, we may not use those words, but we think those thoughts. And what's behind those thoughts is that we know better than God. It is not our Lord's prayer, but it is my prayer. Not thy will, O Lord, but my will be done. Not so Saul. God changes not only his mind, but the Lord Jesus Christ changes his will. He says, you go off to Arabia and you learn and I will teach you. And you will learn to go to the Gentiles because that is where I am sending you. Do you remember I said that to Ananias? That my task for you was not among the synagogues in Damascus. Not amongst the Jews in Jerusalem. But that you were to take my name to the Gentiles. And Saul does something that is too little seen in the church today. He obeys. He goes off to Arabia. Now, when you think about Arabia, you mustn't think of Saudi Arabia and deserts and camels and sheiks of Arabic. Arabia was a land that was northeast of Damascus. It was more toward Iraq and Iran. It was called the Nebatean Kingdom. We know this from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 because it had a king and the king's name was Aretas. And Paul goes off into Arabia and he learns for three years. And this is where I think sometimes our imagination takes us a bit too far. We think of Paul in Arabia for three years, kind of like super duper seminary. And what he's doing is he's sitting in a room and he's, he's pouring over the scriptures and he's writing things down. And, and maybe two or three times a day, a servant softly knocks and, and gives him some food. And he goes back and he's all by himself and he's focused upon the Lord. I don't think that's entirely what's going on here. Because you see, when Saul comes back to Damascus, the Jews plotted to kill him. And the plot became known to Saul, and they have to take him, and they make him a basket case. They put him in a basket, and they lay him outside the city. Now, why do they have to go to this effort? It's because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we see that it wasn't just the Jews that were plotting... It was a governor, an ethnarch of King Aretas who wanted him dead. Now, wait a minute. Why would the king of Arabia want the Jews to kill Paul in Damascus? If we think about it, I think there's only one answer for that. And it fits perfectly with Paul's life. It's because when Paul went off to Arabia, he did study. But you know what else he did? He immediately preached Jesus in the towns, in the synagogues, in the buildings, in the educational facilities. Everywhere he went, Paul simply could not stop speaking about Jesus. And my guess is that King Aretas got tired of that mighty quickly. This guy Saul stirring up trouble here like he always does. And when he found out that Saul was in Damascus and he found out that that was a place where he had some authority he said, we need to find a way to get rid of this guy, to rub him out, to make sure he doesn't do anything anymore. You see, Paul is following the will that God has given to him. God has told him where to go and what to do, and Saul is following without objection. Even in the face of persecution, 
Because that was God's will. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought God's will was that Saul would take the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. So why is it God's will that the Jews try to kill him and that he has to be let out in a basket case and, and he has the difficulty in Arabia? Why, why do we know this is God's will? Well, look back to chapter 9, verse 16. We know it was the will of the Lord Jesus Christ because he tells us. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, Saul could put up with 30 lashes. Saul could put up with stoning. Saul could put up with being driven from town after town because he knew it was God's will. And following God's will was more important than any comfort, than anything in his life. Is that how you live your life? Or are you tempted to put the things of God on hold for a vacation? Or for an advancement at work? Or for a friendship? You see, God calls us to be changed people. And that doesn't just mean we think differently than others. It means we act differently than others. We follow His will. This is what Saul is doing. He's following the priorities that God has set down. God has told him what to do. And in spite of all trouble and in spite of all difficulty, he will follow the path that God has set forth. We even see it in the basket incident. Have you wondered why Saul didn't take this opportunity to be a martyr for the faith? He might have been tempted to follow in the footsteps of Stephen to seize upon what he knew and told us in Philippians, that it was better to be with the Lord than to be present with us. Why does Saul cut and run? Because even seeming cowardice does not thwart the will of God. God had told him he would be his apostle to the Gentiles, and Paul knows he has a task at hand. He will follow God's will no matter where, It takes him. Well, Saul is an example of a Christian who has a changed mind. And he is a Christian who has a changed will. But we also see here, beginning in verse 26, that he has a changed heart. Look with me. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So he comes down to Jerusalem and he is trying out of love to join God's people. He wants to love God's people. Now, the words here in the Greek give us the expectation and the connotation that he was not just trying once. You know how that happens sometimes with our kids? Would you try and pick up your room? And five minutes later, they come back and say, I can't do it. I gave it a shot. Why don't you try and ride your bike? Okay. 45 seconds later, I can't do it. I gave it, I gave it a shot. Saul here is trying over and over again. You might imagine in your mind at the area where the believers were meeting, he might be standing out the door saying, can I come in? And they give him the cold shoulder. 
And he comes back the next day. Could I please speak to you about as they're walking away quickly? If I could only just have a minute of your... Every day, time after time, he is trying to love God's people. Because God has told him that's what he must do. Jesus has shown Saul that if you will be identified with Jesus, you must be identified with his people. That's why he tells Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, again, if anyone had an opportunity not to join with the people of God, not to join formally with the church, it was Saul. He's a prophet of God. He's an apostle of God. He's God's chosen servant to the Gentiles. He suffered for Jesus' sake. His conversion is spectacular. He knows more than perhaps any of the disciples. If anyone could say, you know, I don't need these hypocrites. You know this Peter, one minute he loves Jesus, the next minute he's denying him. You know, John, he's all lovey-dovey and then he wants to rain fire down on villages. I don't need these. You know how many hypocrites there are in the church? Saul might say. And besides, they don't understand me. They didn't grow up at the feet of Gamaliel. They don't know what it's like to be a brilliant Pharisee. They don't know what it's like to see the risen Christ at the road to Damascus. If anyone would have a reason to do that, it would be Saul. But we see him trying over and over again. Would that the people of God today would have that kind of effort to unite together. Saul can't stay away from the people of God. And it would have perhaps, humanly speaking, been in vain. But for Barnabas. You know Barnabas, the son of encouragement. The son of comfort. Barnabas' name is... It's actually the same word that we get the title in Greek for the Holy Spirit being the comforter. Barnabas is kind of a walking instrument of the Holy Spirit. We know Barnabas and we know that he is trusted by the people of God. We saw him earlier in Acts where he sold a piece of property and gave it to the apostles. And now here he walks up to Saul and he engages him. You see, he's not flippant. He doesn't just say, you know, we should all just love each other. No. He walks up to Saul and he says, tell me about your experience of Jesus Christ. We might even imagine that it's kind of a one-man session meeting. Tell us who Jesus Christ is and what he means to you. And Saul would say, well, he's the son of God and I've been preaching him. And I love him and he saved me. And Barnabas would speak with him and say... You know the Lord Jesus. You've got to be with us. You've got to share your experiences. You've got to meet the widow Sophie. You've got to meet Stephen's assistant, who's now one of our deacons. You've got to meet these people. And Saul would say, well, I've been trying, but they won't let me in the door. I think they think that I'm a spy. And Barnabas will have none of this. Because you see, Barnabas has been changed by the same Jesus that has changed Saul. And Barnabas says, let's go. I will vouch for you because I love you, Saul, because you love Jesus. Even if it costs me a little bit of prestige, even if the people who walk around saying how great I am because I sold the property don't invite me to lunch anymore, we're going to go and I'm going to tell you. And he takes Saul and the language there is very vivid. It's It's almost a taking under his wing. 
He takes him. And he brings him to the apostles. And he says, you don't know about Saul. He was in Damascus. And he preached the Lord Jesus. And, and you need to hear his story about Arabia. And, and what happened when the king got upset because he preached Jesus there. You know, it's kind of like Peter when the Sanhedrin got upset for preaching. And then he was in Damascus preaching again. And he was confounding like, like Stephen did. And he barely escaped with his life. You know, Peter and John, like you did. Like you barely escaped from prison. His story is our story. His Jesus is our Jesus. Barnabas takes him under his wing. And he brings him to the people of God. Because you see, that's what happens when we are changed. Our heart is changed and we have a love for the people of God. Not just a love for Jesus. But I dare say that our love for Jesus shows itself in our love for the people of God. Because the church is Christ's body. The church is Christ's army. It is a mission. And Barnabas sees that Saul is a valuable instrument in the Lord Jesus' hand. And so for a very short period of time, 15 days, Paul tells us in Galatians 1, 15 days he's in Jerusalem with Peter and James the Lord's brother. He doesn't even have time to meet the other apostles. He sees Barnabas, Peter, and James. And you can imagine, perhaps, the, the stories that they would have. It's the kind of stories that you might ask each other sitting around the table at dinner. Well, how did you come to know the Lord Jesus? What was your family like like? What's your favorite book of the Bible? What was this like? Except for Saul might ask James... What was it like to grow up with Jesus? Come on, tell me how he worked in the carpentry shop. Come on. Tell me the story again about the wedding. Come on, tell me again. Tell me how he spoke in the synagogues. And everyone understood his wisdom and grace. And then he would turn to Peter and he would say, Now tell me what it was like to minister with Jesus. And no, 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 tell me more, Peter. What's it like to find forgiveness? From Jesus. Because you know I needed forgiveness too. What was your experience of forgiveness like? And they would speak to one another. And after 15 days. Saul moves on. Because he loves. As much as he loves the people of God. As much as he loves the church of God. There's something he loves even more. He loves God's purpose more. Do you see it? He went in in verse 28 and he did what Saul always does. He preached Jesus. And he preached him boldly in the name of the Lord in Jerusalem. And he spoke and he disputed with the Hellenists. And they were trying to kill him. Just as they tried and succeeded in killing Stephen. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And he goes down to the largest seaport in Palestine. And then goes back to his hometown of Tarsus. He has to leave these new relationships. He can't even go back to Damascus where his disciples are. He has to go back to Tarsus. He has to start all over again because that's what God wants. Have you ever had to start all over again? Maybe you lost a job and had to move. Maybe you know the pain of losing a child. 
of losing a child in the womb. You have to start all over again. You see, you don't start all over again alone. God is in these circumstances. God is with you. But it won't be easy. You see, we think of Saul slash Paul as the height of excitement of what it really means like to minister in God's name and how he did everything. The problem is there are gaps in the record. There's another gap here. Saul couldn't stand the heat in Jerusalem. Or the disciples didn't want him to be killed. So they send him up to Tarsus and we don't meet Saul now. For four more chapters. Those four chapters cover ten years. For ten years, the most spectacular convert in the history of the Christian church... One of the greatest preachers, church planter, brilliant mind, seeker after God's own heart, is alone for ten years in silence and anonymity. Makes you think a little bit differently when you look at your own life and say, isn't there more to life than this? Can't there be something a little bit more spectacular? You see, Saul's heart was changed that not only was he willing to work for God, he was willing to wait for God. Ten years. Because we see God at work. Look with me finally at verse 31. Saul knows God's purpose. As he goes off to Tarsus, the church has peace and is built up. God is at work in his church. And we see the church growth plan that Saul will take throughout all of Europe. It's a pretty simple plan. It's only got two parts. Church growth equals holiness and reliance upon the Spirit of God. Do you see what they do? They walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and God multiplies them. Do you want to see the church, this church, the American church, grow and multiply? Then we must be changed people with changed minds, changed wills that seek after the Lord, changed hearts that seek after each other and God's purpose, and we must follow the Lord and His way. And He will build His church even as He has promised in His Word.